Hello, welcome to the Mocha SMC podcast. I'm Aisha. And I'm Hera. And we are the Mocha SMCs. We are two Black single mothers by choice who are working to unpack all of the things surrounding this non-traditional path to motherhood. Um, and in this episode, we are picking up with part two of our discussion of our discussion of adoption as SNCs. Returning are our guest hosts, Angela and Michelle. If you recall from part one, Angela is an SNC via adoption, um, domestic infant adoption, to a five-year-old son. And Angela will be speaking from a firsthand experience as adopting as a single mother by choice and is also considering welcoming a second child. And then Michelle is also an SNC by adoption, and she'll be speaking from her firsthand legal perspective about adoption and drawing from her vast experience as an adoption attorney in Chicago. Again, we have the disclaimer that adoption laws can vary state to state, and you want to make sure that if this is your path, that you consult an attorney in the state that you are currently residing in. Okay, so we're going to dive right in. So during episode one, we covered some of the basics of adopting as a Black SMC. And in this episode, we're going to go a little bit deeper into the details. The world would have us believe that Black people don't adopt. So we're going to talk a little bit more about that. We're going to talk about the different steps in the process, the home study, and other uh, things that we should consider when we are setting up our lives, if we believe that as adoption is our path to motherhood. And then, so we're going to go ahead and dive right in. I think where we left off with our last episode is that we were talking about the three different paths to adoption. We talked about adoption, um, domestic infant adoption. We talked about uh, foster care adoption. And in this episode, we want to kind of start and pick up with international adoption and kind of go from there. And so, Michelle, can you give us a um, kind of overview of international adoption? And then, Angela, if you can jump in with what you know from your research and from your own experience, let's go ahead. Take it away. Okay. So, international adoption is basically the third option with regards or the third path that you can take for adoption. Um, it's important to note that international adoption is on a steep decline. Within the last two decades, it's reduced to the United States by 75%. So it's one of those things that you see countries closing on a regular basis. And I actually don't really see that stopping, to be honest. Um, there are a lot of countries that are still open, but it's not the pathway that it used to be even five years ago, to tell you the truth. One of the things that people can do to figure out where they want to go is you can actually Google the U.S. State Department and adoption, and it will pull up all the countries. And each, each you know, you can fill in the country. So put in Haiti. It will tell you all the requirements that are required in order to adopt from Haiti, for example. Or if it's a country that's closed, like Ethiopia, everybody heard about Ethiopia. Ethiopia is now closed. If you put that country in, the State Department will you. It's closed. It will give you what ages you have to be, what relationship, if any, you have to have to the child, it will tell you who you can work with. It gives you that basic information to figure out, is this a country I realistically want to go to? There are some exceptions if you're actually adopting like a niece or a nephew 
Um, but generally now, most countries are Hague and or follow the Hague rules. So even if you're relatives, you're going to have to jump through those hoops, which require agencies and it's far more expensive. Um, and so it's one of those things to take into consideration. The other thing is that the Hague was actually... Um, ratified by the United States. And when it was ratified, it shifted how agencies worked. It was a very costly process. So a lot of agencies actually closed. But one of the things that the Hague did, because their stated purpose was to try and stop child trafficking. One of the things that they did is that they tried to make sure that kids stayed in country if that option was there. So the other thing that you've seen a radical change in international adoption is kids are not coming as young as they used to. I've been doing this for a long time, and I remember when people were adopting internationally and kids were literally three months, four months old. Now it's rare to see kids that are two is about the youngest you're going to see. So international is a great option if you want a little bit older child and you don't want to do foster care. So do you have clients, Michelle, that come to you and are particularly interested in international adoption or is this something you've seen go down in in the last few years? Well, clients usually come to me on the back end, but I do know that people are particularly interested in international adoption. Traditionally, the reasons they were uh, interested is because they felt that they could, they didn't want to return a child, right? So when you adopt internationally, that adoption is done, you come home, there, there's no give back that you might have to risk in foster care, that you might, you know, work with the birth mom and then she changes her mind or work with an expected mom and she changes her mind. The thing is that countries close. So what people are beginning to realize is you work with the country and then a country closed. I had one woman call me. She was on her fifth country because she had started in each country and each country closed before she was able to get a child. So there are those types of things. The other thing is, is that technology has changed tremendously. And so the other reason that a lot of people want an international adoption is so that they'd never really have to deal with birth family. And the problem with that is, is that we now have DNA DNA technology and internet and social media. And even in the poorest of countries, people have smartphones because they don't have computers and people are connecting. Plus there's open adoption now and international adoption. The other thing that happened with the technology is we discovered that there was tons of fraud in international adoption. And that's one of the reasons so many countries close because like Guatemala, for example, they discovered that um, people were bringing babies to be adopted that weren't theirs. So towards the end of Guatemalan adoptions, they started doing DNA testing from the mother to the child. So you get a lot of fraud. Um, That's part of the reason Ethiopia closed. They're now talking, you know, China has a lot of fraud, despite what we thought was despite what we thought was the one child policy, that there really was a lot more to it. So international adoption is not um, used as much as it used to be. Angela, did you consider this as an option when you were looking or when you were thinking? Yeah, I did. Um, And I certainly agree with everything Michelle has stated. So just kind of speaking from, from my personal research and experience, Um, And then a lot of the things that I've read, a couple of points I wanted to make. One, uh, following up on what Michelle said about um, countries closing, part of why the countries are closing uh, specifically to America is because there is some growing 
negative American sentiment, I think, for certain countries. Um, and the reason why, quite frankly, is kind of a few bad apples. Um, there were some situations where, uh, not necessarily MOCA related, but where American families uh, adopted children and then uh, internationally and then didn't do the right thing. Like one of the most famous stories is a woman, I think the child was from like Russia or Ukraine and the child had some special needs. And he was probably about eight years old and she decided she didn't want him anymore. And she literally pinned a note to his chest and put him on a plane and to fly him back to uh, uh, to, to, to his home country. Wow. And when those stories happen, it really doesn't look good for Americans in terms of our ability to, to, to do the right thing. So that's one point I wanted to make it. It's, it's awful. The second thing that was personally my um, challenge and why I opted against uh, international adoption, it seemed like a lot of the countries, when I was looking at their requirements, um, they were definitely much more weighted towards couples than um, singles. I'm not saying it's impossible to adopt as a single. Certainly, um, many people do it. But I just saw that as additional red tape to an already complex process. And so that was one of the the, the, the reasons for me. Additionally, time and money. The last point that I'll make: um, international adoptions can be considerably more expensive um, because, on top of everything else that we talked about before in the U.S., that average, you know, twenty to you know upwards of fifty k. Now you've got to add on travel expenses, and you usually have to travel to that country multiple times. Uh, and then what I also found out in the process is that not only are you traveling to like meet the child and um, meet the the adoption agency there, meet with attorneys, et cetera, et cetera. But often some of the countries will require you to like stay in that country for a certain amount of time, which could be a month, two months. And so it kind of makes sense why they might require a couple, particularly if you have other children, um, it may not be possible for you to, you know, pick up and your life and not work and be someplace for two or three months. So for all those reasons, I think it's particularly challenging for uh, an SMC to uh, adopt internationally. One of the things I'm seeing is that more countries actually have longer time frames. It used to be you could zip in and zip out. Um, and in fact, there were countries that would deliver the babies to you. There was a point where Korea would just put the babies on the plane with a transporter and you would get your baby in the country. Now, some of these countries require you to actually live there. Um, and a lot of people can't drop and roll for six months and live in another country. Right. Thank you. So I, ha I have two questions, um, one for Angela and then one for Michelle. So Angela, when you talked about the the mom who put the the, the note on the, the baby to send the baby back, this kind of comes up. I've seen it in SMC spaces and we've seen it when there's discussion about um, using a donor of a different race. Um, it sounds like it's borderline cultural competencies. Like, are you competent? Are you well-versed? Do you know enough about the culture that you could potentially be adopting from in order to adequately do a, a, a good job of raising a, a child? Um, can you speak to that just a little bit? Yeah, I mean, transracial adoption, geez, we could do a whole <laughs> segment just on that alone. And certainly um, it's it's a challenge here domestically and, you know, not always with international adoption because obviously you could be Black and adopt someone from, you know, the African continent or whatever. But yeah, I think that it's, it is, it just adds a, and Michelle may know more than I do, but my 
brief opinion is that it adds a whole other wrinkle to transracial adoptions. Transracial adoption is certainly a challenge. I think that, you know, certainly people, some people do it beautifully, but other people just aren't cut out for it. I mean, really kind of comes down to, is the adopting family willing to do the work to understand how to properly care for that child, how to um, celebrate that child's culture, how to protect that child from things that they wouldn't from a child with their own race, like mm-hmm. microaggressions, like racism, et cetera. I think when you talk about international transracial adoption, I think it's just one additional layer on top of everything we've been talking about, the challenges of international adoption. So I think that it's certainly possible, but I think that um, the family really has to be willing to, to dig in and do the work to cross those cultural, sometimes language, and obviously also distance boundaries. So it's, it's possible, and, and some of those relationships are great, but you, you got to be willing to do the work. Okay. Yeah, that makes, that makes sense. Sense. a lot of sense. So sense. I wanted to ask you all um, about terms that we often hear, uh, open and closed adoption. So can you talk a little bit about what each one of those is and the considerations for each? So what I'd like to say about open and closed is that many people have different ideas of how to define those. So today I tell people there's no such thing as a closed adoption. Closed would be technically where there's no information from the birth parents to the adoptive parents. But the reality is with DNA technology, the internet, I, anything is only temporarily closed. Things can open at any moment. And so I think that adoptive parents have to enter it enter adoption with the concept that it could open at any moment. Open is the other end of the spectrum, which has to do with the relationship between the adoptive parents and the birth parents or the adoptive family and the birth family. The reality is, is you can talk to a hundred different people and they will define open a hundred different ways. For some people, open means that you've exchanged information. So you know who the other family is, you know where to find them. For other people, open means that you're all going to be at the child's birthday party together. So there's a real range of what open means. It may mean letters and pictures or sharing a Facebook group. It may mean that, you know, you get together every couple of months. It really ranges. What's interesting is I I know that a lot of um, sperm banks are dealing with similar issues when you talk about open open ID versus anonymous uh, donor, because at, at some point in the last, I don't know, seven or eight years, they've all, they've all sort of been moving towards changing just to open for the same, you know, for similar reasons that you talk about Michelle and the fact that like, you know, it's not, nothing's really, nothing's really closed or anonymous anymore with the changes in, in technology and in genetic, genetic research and, and whatnot. So I, I definitely think it's something that parents should all be aware of because when you're going to adopt, um, you know, just understand that it, the relationship or even the knowledge of the birth parents may, may change over time. Absolutely. And I, there's a lot of research now that is suggesting that it's in the best interest of the child to have this information. I think it could also be helpful for the adoptive parents, especially when it comes to health and medical information for the child. Ultimately, if it's not a safety issue, it can be a good thing. There are obviously, um, parameters that need to be set. The other thing is, is that about half the states now have what's called post-adoption contracts that are enforceable. So it's really shifting that this contact can be actually um, legally enforced. 
post-adoption. Angela, um, what 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 has your experience been like um, on the um, perspective of open, closed adoptions? What are your thoughts? Yeah, I'm actually a very strong advocate of fully open adoptions um, and a couple of caveats I would add. One is that it's always, regardless of what the, the hopeful adoptive parent or parents are interested in, it's really at the behest of the expectant mother and then birth mother, right? So you could say, hey, I'm open to having you come over for, you know, weekend barbecues and, you know, hanging out all the time, but it's really up to her, um, her comfort level. And frequently the then birth mother's comfort level will change. She may think that she wants this amount of contact, but then it can evolve and change after birth or even, you know, years after that. So the adoptive parent really um, needs to be respectful of that. And I also wanted to double click on what Michelle said about what's best for the child, 100%. There's all kinds of research that says that adoption is trauma. And even if, you know, like my son was adopted by, you know, when he was a few hours old, uh, it's still a traumatic experience to be raised by someone that you were not born to. So because of that, uh, kind of inherent within the whole open adoption is when do you tell your child that he or she is adopted, is adopted, Mm -hmm. excuse me, and best practices are, uh, and research shows that the earlier, the better. Um, mm-hmm. And the way that I was taught by my particular agency is that it should just become part of that child's persona. So if you asked okay. my son, you know, who are you? He would say, oh, this is my name and I'm five years old and, you know, I uh, have a dog and, you know, I live in this state and I'm adopted and I like to, you know, play soccer. And I mean, like it would mm-hmm. just be part of the things that he would rattle off. So he is very clear that and, and knows from a very young age that we are an adoptive family. And yeah. um, I think that is what's best for his growth and development to never have it be a surprise. Yeah, yeah tell them that's so tell- true on any conception experience, but for sure, you know, the the adoption experience, I can imagine the earlier they understand, the better. Yeah, in SMC spaces, it's tell them early, tell them often, right? Mm-hmm. So even even yep. as um, you, you start, you know, with them being weeks old, months old, they are not really going to understand what you're saying. But as the parent, we are kind of getting our footing on how we want to approach this, we, you know, the more we practice it, the more, you know, muscle has memory, right? The more natural it sounds to us. And that gives yep. us an opportunity to deal kind of with our our stuff, right? Before we have to, to fully engage in a meaningful way in conversations with our little people. <laughs> yeah, I think it's um, so, really important to positively affirm your kid's experience, right? It's similar to what we talk about with like positive yeah. affirmation of blackness, right? It's like positive affirmation of birth story is really important as well 100%. because they're going to be the ones that are put in positions in school when they're talking about family tree projects or, you know, who's your daddy? And they, you know, you want you want them to feel empowered to share what is true and what's their story and not feel any shame in it. And I think it's important for a parent, like when we talk about it to be like, yeah, this is what I did. This is so great. Mm-hmm. You know, this is part of your, part of your family story. Um, and we have to be okay with that or how, or, or really know how we're going to share it. I think before we have that conversation with our kid. Yeah. Well, I think also if you start early, 
before the kid even understands, you get to practice as an adoptive parent. So if you're mm-hmm. telling your child their story when they're, you know, you're changing their diaper, I remember when I got you from the hospital and this is what you were wearing and this is how yep. I met your birth mother. By the time your child oh, gets great. to be three and starts asking harder questions, you've already practiced for three years and you're comfortable in your in your presentation. And yeah. it comes much faster than people realize. People always mm-hmm. seem shocked when their eight-year-old comes home and says, you know, who's my real mom? And they're like, how do I deal with this? I'm like, they somehow think that kids aren't going to ask until they're 16 or 18. And that's just right. not the case. Oh I, yeah. They ask early. My kid was like yeah. two. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was like, mine, we're having this already. <laughs> Although I had always told my child his story, I think it was three. And as single moms Mm -hmm. by choice, another thing I find fascinating, regardless of how you become a single mom by choice, is all the single moms by choice who are shocked when they get the question, who's my daddy, where's my daddy? And they think that that question's going to come at 16. And I'm like, no, that's like three. Mm -hmm. No, they talk about it on the on the playgrounds and preschool. Like my daughter Mm -hmm. had to my daughter shared her story, I think, when she was probably three and a half, four, like little kids talk about this because they see who comes to pick you up. They see who yes. drops you off and they're, you know, they and then figure they it have, out. yeah, yeah, they figure yeah. it out. So, um, Michelle, I do have a question. Um, I, I, I know I have heard of kinship adoption and then kind of like on, on the telling of our stories, is there, you know, explain to us a little bit about kinship adoption. And then from your experience, how, how, how do we tell that story as adoptive parents in the kinship adoption um, scenario? Okay, so kinship adoption basically means that you're somehow biologically related to this child. You're the grandparents, the aunt, the uncle, so on and so forth. Um, And in reality, most adoptions, if you actually look at the stats, are kinship adoptions. But kinship adoptions can be done either inside or outside of foster care. So in a lot of circumstances, kinship adoptions are actually foster care adoptions because when the child is taken from a biological parent, they are placed with family and eventually that comes to adoption. But there are also a lot of situations where a mom will just leave the child with her mother or um, have her sister raise her child while she went to jail or whatever the case may be, and an adoption occurs between family members. So that's really the basic of base. That's the basic definition of kinship adoption, but it can happen many different ways. Actually, it also happens internationally. You do get Mm -hmm. people who are here who, you know, they go adopt their niece from Nigeria, for example. So that Mm -hmm. would also be a kinship adoption, but it's an international adoption. The story is a little bit different because with kinship adoption, they're obviously going to see this family for the most part. They'll see them at family reunions or the family barbecue. So how different families deal with it varies. In the past, a lot of people kept it a secret. Um, But just like any other adoption today, you know, you can't keep these secrets. So the best thing to do is from day one, you know, the same story. Like I remember when, you know, I um, brought you home and you know that Auntie Jo is also your birth mom, you know, and tell the story. So there's no surprises later with how family came together. Okay. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for that. So can we talk a little bit about the process of adoption? So I know I got stuck at the home study, the home study step, 
and I got overwhelmed and I got bewildered. I looked at my living situation and I realized I had a two bedroom apartment and I could not take um, a male child if one, if I had to go pick one up um, in an emergency situation. So could you uh, speak to a little bit about that, um, Michelle? What is kind of the process in general? Sure. So first of all, I want to point out that the process for uh, foster care adoption and the process for domestic infant adoption and international adoption, they all have slightly different rules. And all 50 states have slightly different rules. And from a practical standpoint, depending how many kids are in foster care, some of those rules are sometimes side-eyed. So if they really need foster parents, yeah, the rules sometimes go out the door. I, have I love discovered. that. Sometimes they're side-eyed. <laughs> I like it. Right. But in general, they you're going to need a space for the child. In my state, you don't actually need to have a separate bedroom for the child, but you do need to have a certain amount of space for the child. And it depends upon the age of the child. So depending what you're looking for and the where you're doing it, you may actually have to have a separate bedroom and kids of separate sexes or opposite sexes need to have separate bedrooms. But I think it's like, depending upon the state, some states it's like age three, other states it's age six, other states it's even higher. New York City, for example, is going to be a lot more lenient and kids of different sexes sharing a room than Texas because New York City kids of the opposite sex share rooms all the time because they live in much tighter, smaller spaces. So the home study is going to require in most states some adoption education that can range from a minor amount of education to 30, 40 hours of education. Usually when you're doing foster care, it will also include how to raise the substance exposed child, how to raise the um, physically abused child and some of those other special needs, which by the way, may be present in both domestic infant adoption and international adoption, but you may not cover that area. I find that domestic infant adoption does a better job in their education on how to talk to your child about adoption than foster care adoption education. They will also come out to investigate your home. So you're going to talk to a social worker and the social worker is going to make sure you have the space that you have the requirements of the home. For example, you're going to need, you know, smoke detectors and carbon monoxide monoxide detectors, and they want to make sure that your home is safe. They are not going to, as my friend says, they're not going to run a white glove over your refrigerator to make sure that you don't have dust. That is not their concern. Their concern <laughs> is that people always want to go out and have these spotless homes. Because I, right. I have dust. Right. I have dust. I have a friend who for, uh, who was a social worker in foster care, and she said every time she came into an apartment that was spotless and had all white furniture, it made her nervous because she's Mm -hmm. like, how are they ever going to take a child who, as we all know, children spill everywhere. And you can just see the Kool-Aid or the ketchup getting on the white couch and the parent losing it. So it's not a cleanliness test, but obviously they don't want roaches and rats and all the mice running around your house. That's going to be a a deterrent, right? Um, So I have a quick question about, you know, I think, I think it's really important to mention before you adopt, you know, were there moments where you had to kind of think to yourself about what sorts of challenges you could, you could handle? Angela, did you have any of these thoughts before? or How did you kind of handle that? Yeah. So depending upon which path to adoption you choose, you, you may have a lot of guidance on this topic. I call it 
basically uh, refer to it as your risk profile of, you know, kind of what you're willing to accept and, um, and, and what you're comfortable with in terms of potential challenges with the child. Um, the agency I worked with had a, a whole training session on this and, and stuff we had to read and, and, and so forth. And so I, I kind of make a, a analogy to if you've ever gone to a financial planner and they say, hey, you know, what is your risk profile? You know, how aggressively do you want to invest and so forth? And you have to make a bunch of decisions to come up with what your strategy is. <clears throat> it's kind of similar. Um, and what I mean by that, um, you know, before you go live as part of this home study and, and, and uh, approval process, if you're working with an agency, they're going to ask you questions about the birth mother risk behavior. So things like, you know, uh, smoking during pregnancy, things like drugs, things like um, how much prenatal care did she get, uh, if any, because sometimes they don't. Things like her family, um, for her and the birth father, uh, well, at this point, expected father, their family history. You know, do they have any family history of disease, of mental illness, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, these are all things that you, as a prospective parent, um, would have to think about and you have to make some decisions about. Um, one of the, uh, and this question comes up a lot, it's one of the first questions people ask um, when I talk to people who are thinking about adoption. And one of the things I always share is that um, you need to try to be um, as, as open to this as you can. Um, because the more uh, prescriptive or the more, or the more conservative you are, uh, this goes back to an earlier topic we talked about in the first session, is the, the more it's likely to increase your, uh, your, your wait time. And there are things that you can do to help mitigate this risk. Obviously, you can do research if you are matched with the um, expectant mother on, you know, what her, for what she shares medical history is. A lot of people will actually go, and I did this myself, um, and talk to a pediatrician. Some people don't know that most pediatricians will give you a free appointment if you are adopting or if you are pregnant uh, as an almost interview to see whether or not you would want to, you know, use that pediatrician for uh, mm, for your for your an child. Idea. Well, I didn't so, yeah, so I went in and met with my pediatrician who had been recommended to me. Because um, there were some health concerns um, for um, this is, you know, while I was trying to decide to match with my son's birth mother. And I said, hey, she's dealing with this and this. What do you think about this? Should I be worried about this? What's the, you know, the, the likelihood of this being, you know, passed down to uh, this, you know, still unborn child? Um, and that helped me to feel confident about moving forward. And the last point that I'll make about this is um, gender. A lot of um, folks will say, oh, well, I already have a girl, so I want a boy or vice versa or, or have a, a preference on gender. And it's just one of the other things that folks should be uh, aware of. Again, the more specific you are, potentially the longer that you're going to wait. So I have a question. I know, Angela, you're thinking about potentially having a second. Does your risk, your risk level or your risk profile change for you now that you're, you know, then was it different with number one than it would be for number two? For me, it is because um, I I know more. I've experienced more. I've talked to, I, ha I had multiple failed matches before I um, was successfully adopted. So I talked to a lot of birth mothers and you just know more. So when you're going into the, for the first time, it's a natural tendency to be more conservative because it's just things that you don't know you haven't been exposed to. Um, mm -hmm. But now I actually, I know multiple friends who adopted children who had drugs in their system because of course they're tested when they're born, right? I know one situation where the um, birth mother was actually, depending upon the, the laws in that state, was arrested because the child had drugs in, her, in, in his system when he was born. So mm -hmm. 
but for me, I've, I've seen that, you know, it's all kind of a continuum and I know that child personally and he's fine. He doesn't have any long lasting effects from having been, you know, born with drugs in his system. So I'm much more open um, now than I would have been six years ago starting this process. I have okay. to say with drugs in your system, that's a really broad term and people say substance exposed or um, a, a, they refer to drugs. And the problem is, is that you really need to do your research on it because not all drugs affect kids the same way. And so when Mm -hmm. people say, I won't take a drug exposed kid, I'm like, well, what do you mean? Do you mean a kid that's exposed to marijuana, ecstasy, cocaine, heroin, methadone, which drug are we talking about? And is this something that she's doing, you know, every day, or is this something that she does, you know, once in a while and alcohol is the drug that's known to be the worst, um, which they can't really test for. So, Mm -hmm. There's a lot of risk with adoption. When you are not carrying the child, you don't know exactly what happened in the past. That's one of the advantages of actually adopting from foster care or international and adopting an older child, because by that point, a lot of times you have a lot more information. Has Mm -hmm. this actually, uh, the drug exposure, is it actually causing learning disabilities? Is it causing ADD, ADHD, RAD, ODD, all the numerous um, things? You have a lot more background information where when you're adopting a newborn, you know, there's only so much information you have at that point. Um, On the other hand, a newborn hasn't been exposed to bad things outside of the womb. And these are also risk factors that you have to decide as an individual family what works better for you. I will also say before I got into tech, I used to work as a special education teacher and I had a lot of students who were drug exposed at various levels and they were fantastic, right? Like they, they, many of them, you know, were, were on various medications, but I will say that even the ones that, for sure, we're, we're having challenges as a result. I mean, those kids were fantastic. They had lots of strengths um, and many of them were very loving. And so I would certainly encourage parents not to be too scared away, even if the kid ends up having learning difficulties as a result. Yeah, I, I will say there was a point um, in my pregnancy where the pr- pretty much at the last second where there was a concern um, that, um, my, my, that my child would be born, um, with a disability or some sort, um, the microcephaly, um, that I would, you know, and I had to make a decision in the moment that, you know, all kids deserve love and God gave me this kid. I'm gonna love the hell out of this kid. And that was just that decision. And, you know, and I think that all kids deserve love. Um, (laughs) And so um, I want to I want to ask, um, because when I was considering adoption through through foster care and to kind of like um, wrap us up, what what are some tips and advice that you can give? Because I didn't anticipate having a three year journey to my second, but I did. But I did know kind of ahead of time that adoption was absolutely on the table for me. So I wonder if there were things that I could have done earlier in the process to prepare my life, my living situation, to accept a child into my home. What are some bits of advice that you would give to any SMC who's considering the path to motherhood and knowing that adoption is a path for them? 
not knowing, knowing that it is on the table for them. Absolutely. I would say build your village. And this is not, this is from my uh, personal experience that taking a child into your home is going to radically change your life. It's going to change your time schedule, your sleep schedule, your eating schedule. Everything resolves around the kid. We think of us being the bigger people. And so therefore we are the ones in control, but frankly, they're in control because we've been to their, their schedules. So because of that, as a single mom by choice and not having another person to drop and roll, you have to put your village in place, whether that's family or friends, you have to have your village in place. So I definitely agree with that. And I think we had talked about the the village last time. So I'm glad that Michelle brought it up again because it, it does bear repeating. My advice for someone, Emilka uh, uh, SMC pursuing adoption is to, it's, a, it's a, a point, but with a caveat, I would say, do your research. Um, as I think has become clear from this conversation, there are lots of different ways to pursue adoption and they're not created equal. There's different prices, different time lengths, et cetera, et cetera. And so there's a lot to weed through for you to decide if you're going to do it at all, but also which is which path you want to pursue. So definitely do your research and how you do that research. I mean, there are books out there. There are, uh, well, there's this podcast. Um, There's certainly a lot of um, Facebook um, support groups on adoption. So, and very large groups. But what I would say with the Facebook groups in particular is just be careful and and consider your source, right? Mm -hmm. Know that some of those groups are going to be much more geared towards couples than singles. And some of them are going to be much not as sensitive to the particular challenges of a Mocha SMC. So I think the best thing you can do when you're doing research is to find other Mocha SMCs who have adopted and have a heart-to-heart conversation. Um, Everyone that I know, and I know many, we are very passionate about helping others and happy to have this conversation. And I think that can often be your best resource. I would add that adoption agencies also sometimes treat their Black clients differently. Sometimes it's a really positive experience. Sometimes it's not. So understanding how to approach adoption agencies as a Black person is important. Well, thank you. Thank you both. I feel like there's so much that so much more yeah, that we, we can, can get into we can talk about this for a on year. <laughs> this topic. And we barely kind of scratched the surface. So over these last two episodes. So I do want to take a moment and thank um, Angela and Michelle for allowing us to pick your brain and for just sharing your your knowledge and experience in such a generous way. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Yes. Yes. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Well, to our pod. If you have questions, feel free to email us or reach out to us on social media. Uh, We have a resource page for the adoption um, episode series. We have, and it will have contact information um, for Michelle, some frequently asked questions, some acronyms, just a ton of resources. On that note, if you like what you've heard, please share us out to your social media. Tell your grandma, tell your mom, tell your friends, tell your coworkers, and please follow us on Twitter at Mocha SMC. Like our Facebook page, Mocha SNC Podcast, and feel free to visit our website, www.mochasnc.com. And join us next time as we continue to discuss this often hilarious journey of being a Black SNC.